Howdy. Thanks for listening this week. We want to remind you to keep leaving reviews. Go to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash texaspodcast and tell everybody you know about the show because we're really proud of it and we're so thankful for all of your support. So send us a message on our webpage or shoot us an email or Twitter us or send a Facebook message. But just let us know what you think of the show. And without further ado, here's the show. Well, why would you buy a home? You're moving all the time. (laughs) This is clearly renters. Howdy, you're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share our views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zolkowski. I'm Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Elfstrom. Dwight D. Eisenhower is one of the most iconic figures in American history. A career military man, he became the face of American leadership during World War II, which eventually led him to the White House, where he defined an era. But few people remember that this great man had a humble birth in a small town in North Texas. But first... What's your favorite fried food at the Texas State Fair? I like deep fried Oreos. Mm. Does that make the middle? I've, I've never had one. Does it make the middle all gooey? Well, it does. But the nice thing is, is there's like four of them. And so it's not like the Twinkie where you just get overwhelmed with fried food. It's just you could split it with everybody and, and just get just enough. No, it's 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 not overwhelming at all to take a huge Oreo and dunk it in batter and deep fry it. <laughs> I guess, you know, I think I think some things just the classics work. And so for me it's just it's a it's a funnel cake. Just a good old fashioned funnel cake. I don't need anything stuffed inside the funnel cake. You just take the <laughs> batter, make a circle and Nor- dunk it in the in the fryer and I'm good to go. You yeah. don't need ice cream, uh chocolate, bacon and uh uh jalapenos nope. stuffed into it. Nope, just give me the batter. Well, I am also a fan of the classics and probably my favorite thing to ever get at the Texas State Fair, and it's something they don't have every year, is the Fletcher's Original Jalapeno Corn Dog. And uh, I I could eat those all the time, but they don't always have them. No, and I don't care what those people in Iowa say. Fletcher's invented the corn dog in Texas at the Texas State Fair. That's that's what I've heard. Mm-hmm. Take that, Iowa. sounds like a potential episode. (laughs) Dwight David Eisenhower was born October 14, 1890, the third of seven sons of David Jacob Eisenhower and Ida Elizabeth Stover Eisenhower in the small town of Denison, north of Dallas, just south of the border with Oklahoma. The family lived in a tiny two-story house near the railroad tracks where Dwight's father cleaned railroad engines for a living. The house is now the Eisenhower Birthplace State Historical Site in Denison. His mother had originally named him David Dwight, but reversed the names to avoid confusion with his father. As it were, all of the boys were called Ike, as it was considered something of an abbreviation of their last name. Young Dwight was called Little Ike, but within a few years he was the only boy who still kept the nickname. The Eisenhowers lived in Texas until 1892 when they moved to Abilene, Kansas. Dwight was a year and a half old and he spent most of his growing years there. His family was poor, and like many Americans at the time, the whole family worked to ensure there was food on the table. But Ida valued education and encouraged all the boys to read. Ike himself was a voracious reader, especially of history books. These books on his mother's collection inspired a lifelong interest in military history, which became a source of tension with his mother since she was a Mennonite pacifist. 
His other passion, though, is sports. He became a baseball and football star at Abilene High School, and he graduated in 1909. After he graduated, he wanted to go to college, but he delayed going so he could support his older brother, Edgar. They agreed to attend alternate years and to work to support the other one when they were not attending college. So while he waited to go to school, Dwight took a job at a local creamery. After Edgar completed his first year, he asked Dwight for a second one. Dwight agreed and kept working. However, a friend from school was applying to the Naval Academy and encouraged Dwight to write to their U.S. senator in order to gain an appointment, since there was no tuition required. Dwight wrote to Republican Senator Joseph Bristow asking for consideration to either Annapolis or the Army's Military Academy at West Point. Bristow nominated him to take the entrance exams, which he passed, but he was too old to attend the Naval Academy. Instead, Dwight received an appointment to West Point in 1911, and Edgar was on his own. At West Point, he excelled at sports and loved all the traditions. He failed to make the baseball team, something he considered the greatest disappointment of his life, but he did make the football team and became a standout until he suffered a serious knee injury while playing against the Carlisle Indian Industrial School. The injury occurred shortly after he assisted in tackling sports legend Jim Thorpe. It was his second serious knee injury. The first had occurred in high school, and he'd nearly lost a leg. The second one ended his athletic career, and it would have serious consequences later. As a student, he was less than outstanding. He didn't care much for hazing, and he had a mediocre discipline rating. Although one superior thought he was, quote, born to command, another advised that his first assignment be under a, quote, strict disciplinarian. He graduated right in the middle of a class of 163. The class of 1915 was one of the most famous in West Point history. It became known as the class the stars fell on because of the 164 graduates, 59 attained the rank of general in their careers, including two who attained five-star rank, which is the highest in the U.S. Army. It was the largest percentage of generals ever to graduate in one class. And one of these men would become one of Ike's closest friends and lifelong colleague and subordinate during World War II, Omar Bradley. He was the other one who, re- who attained five-star rank. Upon graduating, it actually wasn't clear if he was going to get his commission due to the knee injury, and he actually made plans to take a trip to Argentina. West Point's chief medical officer, recognizing his potential, intervened and obtained a commission for him. Seeking excitement, Eisenhower requested a posting in the Philippines. However, his first assignment was to his home state. He was assigned to the 19th Infantry at Fort Sam Houston, San Antonio, Texas, on September 13, 1915, as a logistics officer. The posting was mostly uneventful. He even had time to be football coach for what is now St. Mary's University. However, in San Antonio, he did meet 18-year-old Mamie Geneva Dowd, the pretty daughter of a meatpacking executive. Mamie was staying with her parents at their winter home in San Antonio and was visiting a friend who was the wife of one of Dwight's fellow officers. On the first day they met, Dwight invited Mamie to accompany him on his rounds as officer of the day, and they were pretty much inseparable from that point on. He married her on July 1, 1916, at her parents' home in Denver, and he was promoted to first lieutenant that very same day. Like many military families, Dwight and Mamie moved numerous times in the early years of their marriage. By 1960, the Eisenhowers had moved 28 times, which included stints in Panama, France, the Philippines, and of course the White House. But they didn't purchase their first home until 1948. Well, why would you buy a home you're moving all the time? 
<laughs> this is clearly renters. In 19... 19- <laughs> base housing. <laughs> Lots of base housing. Yes. In 1917, their first son, Dow Dwight, but called Icky, was born. He died of scarlet fever when he was three years old, though. Their second child, John, was born the year after Icky died. John later followed his father to West Point, graduating on the same day as the D-Day landings in Normandy. He served in the Army during World War II in Korea, eventually attained the rank of Brigadier General. He was involved in government service and later became a noted military historian, dying recently in 2013. In 1917, the U.S. entered World War I. Eisenhower hoped for a combat assignment, but was refused and sent to Fort Leavenworth in Kansas. Repeated requests for combat units were denied, but he did get a brevet or temporary promotion to lieutenant colonel, and he was sent to a tank training center in Camp Colt in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania instead. There he displayed remarkable organizational skills and was a keen judge of strengths and characters of the junior officers who came through his command. The war ended before he could be granted a combat command in France, which embittered him and would later be used by detractors to denigrate him as a commander. But his service was certainly recognized by his superiors, and he was one of the few officers in the Army with real operational experience in tank warfare. In 1919, reverted to his permanent rank of major, Eisenhower supervised a cross-country Army convoy designed to emphasize the need for improved roads across America and also to test vehicle operation. The convoy averaged 5 miles per hour from Washington, D.C. to San Francisco, California. The experience made an impression on Eisenhower and later influenced him to envision a new road system in America. He also worked hard to promote the uses and deployment of tanks in order to prepare for the next war. Through this, he befriended another young tank officer fresh from the battlefields in France, George S. Patton. He continued to advance in his military career, receiving staff assignments with high-level generals. He served as executive officer to General Fox Connor in the Panama Canal Zone. Connor urged Eisenhower to apply to the command school in Leavenworth, which was the Army's prestigious graduate school. He also made friends with another of Connor's protégés, a young officer named George C. Marshall. After graduating first in his class of 245 students in 1926, Eisenhower served with the Buffalo Soldiers, a segregated black unit with white officers. And then, in 1927, he reported to General John J. Pershing, known as Black Jack Pershing, who had led American troops to victory in World War I. Eisenhower worked for Pershing for two years, helping design a guide to American battlefields in Europe. In doing so, he was able to study firsthand Pershing's battles and his experience serving in a unified multinational coalition. He returned to the U.S. and served as a staff officer to George Mosley, Assistant Secretary of War, from 1929 to 1933. Next, he was appointed as chief military aide to General Douglas MacArthur, a brash and flamboyant officer who'd made a name for himself in France and had recently been superintendent at West Point. At the time, MacArthur was serving as chief of staff of the United States Army, essentially its highest serving officer. Eisenhower accompanied MacArthur to the Philippines from 1935 to 1939. Now, it's said that this assignment helped him later when he had to deal with challenging personalities like Winston Churchill, George Patton, and Bernard Montgomery, because there's no more challenging a personality at that time than Douglas MacArthur. Eisenhower returned to the United States in 1939, a lieutenant colonel again, holding staff assignments in California and Washington State. 
In mid-1941, he was transferred back to Fort Sam Houston, where he became Chief of Staff for the Third Army. In September 1941, as war with Japan and Germany became more and more possible, he finally was promoted to Brigadier General. On the eve of war, he was considered a talented staff officer with several highly placed friends, including George Marshall, who was now Army Chief of Staff. However, never having served in combat, Eisenhower was far down on the list of potential field commanders. His service in Texas did get him some attention, however. In September, he'd played a major role in the Louisiana Maneuvers, a large-scale training exercise in which the Army was able to work out a number of problems and gain some much-needed experience that would later be put to good use after it officially entered World War II. Recognized for this achievement, as well as his outstanding staff work, Eisenhower was called to Washington, D.C. after Pearl Harbor to develop the major war plans that would eventually lead to Japan and Germany's defeat. He quickly became the chief of the War Plans Division and became intimately familiar with the strengths and weaknesses the U.S. military faced in those dark days. Marshall promoted him to assistant chief of staff in charge of operations, where he could better help direct the training and organization of the U.S. forces preparing to take the war to Germany. In 1942, Eisenhower was promoted to Major General and sent to London, where he was appointed Commanding General European Theater of Operations. There he was in charge of organizing the American forces that were starting to pour into Great Britain. He was picked over dozens of higher-ranking officers with more combat experience, but Marshall knew that he was the right man for the job. A few months later, in November, he earned his third star when he became Commander-in-Chief of Allied Forces in Northwest Africa and led Operation Torch, the Allied invasion. This campaign was the first offensive action taken by the Americans in the European theater, and the outstanding success earned Eisenhower a fourth star. And incidentally, George Patton served under him during that operation, yep. as did Omar Bradley. Yep. And if you're looking for an extremely um, engrossing and exhaustively detailed book about that campaign, <laughs> um, I can recommend uh, I could recommend uh, Rick Atkinson's uh, Army at Dawn. Um, right. Learned a lot of things about what. Uh, kind of condition the U.S. Army was in at that time period, and it was not good. Yeah, and and actually Atkinson wrote, did finish this series. He wrote Day of Battle about the invasion of Italy and uh, The Guns at Last Light by uh, about the invasion of Europe. So someday, if you would, yeah, <laughs> if you if you would like to read six thousand pages worth of uh, books, then definitely those are good books to check out. Yep, and Eisenhower. I'm saying Eisenhower's story is woven through all of that, obviously. Right. So if you have a serious insect problem in your house, I recommend you check it out because <laughs> those are some real cockroach killers. Now, Eisenhower didn't command the troops in battle, but he directed strategy, appointed commanders, and ensured that they had the tools they needed to achieve victory. He also learned valuable lessons about how to deal with his allies, both military and civilian, and became noted as a calm, reasonable diplomat who strove for consensus and cooperation. Eisenhower next commanded the invasions of Sicily and Italy in 1943, before being called back to London, where he was designated Supreme Allied Commander of the Allied Expeditionary Force, where he began planning the invasion of Europe. On D-Day, June 6, 1944, Eisenhower commanded the greatest invasion in history when Allied forces landed at Normandy in France. Eisenhower maintained supreme command of all Allied forces in Western Europe as they began their long march to Berlin. 
In December of 1945, Eisenhower was promoted to five-star general, largely because the size of his forces and command dictated, but also to settle any disputes with his British subordinates, including Montgomery, who ostensibly held a higher rank than he did. And if you've seen the movie Patton, which is a supremely accurate historical document, uh, Montgomery's a jerk. (laughs) (laughs) After Germany... (laughs) Well, that... That, yeah, that wasn't creative license either. <laughs> he was really a jerk. After Germany surrendered in May of 1945, he was made military governor of the U.S. occupied zone. Eisenhower was instrumental in ordering the comprehensive documentation of all the known Nazi concentration and death camps, ensuring that the full truth about the Holocaust was exposed to the world. A few months later in November, he was appointed U.S. Army Chief of Staff. This rise through the ranks had been steady and rapid. Only four years before, he'd been a lieutenant colonel, but he'd proved himself worthy of every promotion. When Ike returned to the U.S., he was justly hailed as one of America's great heroes. In 1948, he was selected to be president at Columbia University, where he served until December 1950. He decided to leave Columbia to accept an appointment as first Supreme Allied Commander of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. While he was at Columbia, he had been encouraged by Republicans, including Bob Kleberg, owner of the King Ranch in Texas, as well as H.J. Porter, a Texas oil executive, to run for president of the United States in 48. Eisenhower declined, thinking that he needed to see a groundswell of support from Americans to demonstrate that this was his next call of duty. The Republicans, however, insisted, believing that he would win. In 1952, though, the desire by the American public to, quote, draft Eisenhower was too great for him to resist. At the Republican National Convention, the Texas delegation, populated by Eisenhower supporters, pushed him over the top in a bitter battle with Robert A. Taft. Due to the unpopularity of the Korean War and his tough stance on communism, as well as the simple campaign slogan, I like Ike, Eisenhower was elected the 34th president of the United States, winning handily over Adlai Stevenson in a landslide. As president, Eisenhower continued the liberal New Deal policies of FDR and Harry Truman, including Social Security, and created a cabinet-level department, the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare, to handle the expanded scope of the programs. The first secretary was Oveta Culpabi, a native of Killeen, Texas, wife of a former Texas governor, and a former colonel in the Women's Army Corps during the war. Hobby is notable for being the second female cabinet member and also for approving the polio vaccine invented by Jonas Salk. Overall, Eisenhower's cabinet consisted of eight business leaders and one labor leader prompting a newspaper wag to label them, quote, nine millionaires and a plumber. (laughs) In a departure from previous presidents, Eisenhower held almost 200 press conferences during his two-term presidency. He felt that a positive relationship with the press was important for a president, but the opportunity to speak to the nation was even more valuable. The purpose of his press conferences was similar to that of FDR's fireside chats. He spoke directly to the people about policy matters. One of the greatest accomplishments of the Eisenhower administration was the interstate highway system. The system was a network of 41,000 miles of high-speed, limited-access roadways designed to ease transcontinental travel and facilitate rapid evacuation from major cities for large masses of people in the event of a nuclear attack. 
Prior to its construction, cross-country travel required driving on two-lane U.S. highways, which often passed through the center of towns and cities, slowing travel and increasing the opportunities for mishaps. It's also good for escaping hurricanes. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) The interstate system changed America in unanticipated ways, though, uh, as depicted in the famed 2006 documentary Cars. And uh, if any of you have kids, you've seen this movie a million times. Previously, cross-country travelers saw the nation through the eyes of small-town America, stopping at gas stations, eating at tiny restaurants, and spending nights in local motels. You know... Often shaped like uh, uh, cones. They were shaped like traffic cones. cones or maybe shaped like tiny Alamos, you know, whatever. Yeah, there's a famous song, Route 66, and it's an ode to the era. Route 66 crossed through the panhandle, and as it ceased to be important... There's towns like Glen Rio and Layla that became ghost towns because of the interstate system. Still other towns that were built on the interstate thrived. And in fact, the Texas Triangle of the DFW, San Antonio, and Houston metroplexes is framed by all of Eisenhower's beautiful concrete interstates. As the civil rights movement gained traction in the mid-1950s, Eisenhower convinced Congress to pass the Civil Rights Act of 1957. This was the first Civil Rights Act passed since the Reconstruction. It established a six-member Civil Rights Commission and abolished some of the voting restrictions the South had been using to disenfranchise blacks. Unfortunately, Southern Democrats in the Senate watered down the bill so that it was not very effective. It took two more bills, one passed by John F. Kennedy and the second by Lyndon Baines Johnson, to finally break the hold of the South on black voting rights. Eisenhower also deployed the United States Army on domestic soil to enforce civil rights. He sent the 101st Airborne to Little Rock, Arkansas, to enforce desegregation at Central High School after the Brown v. Board of Education decision. Arkansas Governor Orville Faubus famously ordered the Arkansas National Guard to prevent black students from entering the school. Eisenhower exercised his power as commander-in-chief and ordered the 101st to maintain order and force the state to comply with the Supreme Court's decision. Eisenhower also managed to reduce the national debt while in office. He balanced three of his eight budgets, and in 1956 and 1957, the national debt actually decreased from what it had been the year before. He ran on a platform of government frugality, and he carried through with his promise. Other accomplishments of Eisenhower's administration were his foreign policy, He embraced a policy of nuclear deterrence. He ended the Korean War, and he worked hard for peace, attempting several times to get the Russians to agree to nuclear disarmament and promoting his Atoms for Peace initiative. He also strongly supported the United Nations. In 1954, he articulated his often derided domino theory regarding the advance of communism in Southeast Asia, and he advanced the CETO Treaty to deal with the threat. Unfortunately, his administration was marred by the interference in international politics by the CIA and other intelligence operations. In fact, the CIA is listening to us record this right now. The CIA was involved in coups in Central America, Southeast Asia, and in Iran during the Eisenhower administration, events which would have devastating consequences to American interests for years to come. In years to come. also consequences on other countries across the world. Yeah. Well, we're talking about the country of Texas, though. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) 
An oft-quoted phrase of Eisenhower's is his famous warning in his farewell speech about the power of the, quote, military-industrial complex. This is a term that he coined. Eisenhower was worried about the growing size of the Pentagon budget, and he warned the nation of the, quote, unwarranted influence of the military-industrial complex. The statement has been used many times when discussing the undue congressional influence of the companies that make war-making material for the armed forces. After leaving office in 1960, Eisenhower retired with Mamie to their farm adjacent to the Gettysburg National Battlefield in Pennsylvania. He'd been in poor health since the war years. During the war, he suffered from hypertension and insomnia due to stress and was a heavy smoker. While at Columbia, he'd quit smoking, but as president, he'd suffered both a heart attack and a mild stroke. His old knee injuries limited his mobility, but he still enjoyed golfing, reading, and working on the farm. Dwight Eisenhower died in 1969 of congestive heart failure. He was 79 years old. He was buried in Abilene wearing his army uniform and a simple soldier's casket. He was uh, laid to rest next to his son, Dowd. Ten years later, Mamie was buried right next to them. So, technically, Texan. But regardless, uh, he had a remarkable career, uh, remarkable influence um, on the world, really, with uh, mm-hmm. you know what he was able to accomplish in his lifetime. Um, I don't I haven't read a lot about Eisenhower, and I'm not the World War II historian that you are, Sean. But um, I have seen people touch on the fact that a, a different general, a different person in his position during World War II could have had a drastically different uh, outcome. Oh, yeah. Well, Sean absolutely. and I had to talk about this, you know, before we got to this episode. Um, it's interesting. He's, from a certain point of view, I mean, he was kind of a, you know, glorified secretary administrative assistant for quite a long time. Just a real a logistics mm-hmm. guy, a paper pusher. But um, he was very, uh, he was a very observant and a consensus builder. And he was very good at, mm-hmm. um, I don't want to say manipulating, but he was very adept at dealing with large personalities. I mean, we talked about Douglas MacArthur and those kinds of guys. And I think, you know, that's he was he was really a, a consensus builder. And I think he just was one of those people that could sort of bring you around to his way of thinking, you know, without, uh, you know, without uh, uh, having to strong arm. You know, he didn't strong arm people into things. He just brought them around to his point of view and built consensus. And then that's I think yeah. the you know what the what the allies needed during the war was not you know the the famous brilliant mind of hot-headed George Patton leading multinational groups you needed a quiet gentleman who uh could, you know used wisdom and had a, a solid temperament that uh, could handle that mm-hmm. yep. right you 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 didn't need a fighter leading the leading everybody. You needed your fighters in the field. So Patton was definitely a fighter, and he needed to be in the field. You needed a McCar- You needed you needed an Eisenhower to to listen, to weigh the options, to make concessions, uh, and and when he needed to, he could stand up and say, "This is what we're going to do." Um, if you read the the Atkinson books, the three ones, especially the last one, it's amazing that we won the war. <laughs> it's amazing that we could actually even like our leaders could even 
talk to each other. I mean, Montgomery was so difficult to deal with. Patton was exceedingly difficult to deal with. Uh, there were petulant. There was other generals that were petulant. Some were incompetent. Some were set up their own little kingdoms. And these were and, just the United States officers. Yeah. Yeah. Fortunately, the Germans were even worse off than the Americans were. And they had a crazy person at the top. Um, so, you know, I, reading about Eisenhower, the interesting thing that I read about him was uh, on the eve of the in Normandy invasion, he was smoking 80 cigarettes a day. That's eight zero. Yep. And then, yeah, and then there was a point in the late summer of '44 that they said that it said that his heart rate was 179 over 120, which I think he, sh- he sh- is like a heart attack. Yeah, yeah. So he was, and they had to actually put him on sedatives to to get him to get his heart rate down. Um, so he was, you know, he was under a, a massive amount of stress, but he was able to internalize that and. Um, that was his real strength. And and I think that made him a good president because a president needs to be a consensus builder. A president needs to, to weigh the options and make firm decisions uh, and, and work with people that are not able to be worked with and, and get everyone on the same page. And Eisenhower was good at that. And there, you know, the thing about Eisenhower is he, he really did define the 1950s. He is, he is the president for most of the fifties, but he's, He's the person that's associated with that era and time, um, that 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 early baby boomer time of the post-war when when America was strong and we had that the solid guy in the White House and everybody was his values were all the same and that that's that's the image that Eisenhower represents. I think it's interesting going back to his early childhood. I want to know how um, his mother who is a, a Mennonite pacifist, how she ends up with a lot of books of military history. Well, there were history. There's general history books oh, okay. is what they were. And he was really interested in the parts that were about the military. Oh, so, okay. yeah, it, but it, yeah, but I mean, he, her, his upbringing defined his character. His father was a very decent person, a hardworking person. His mother was very religious and was very, was very emotionally stable and you know his brothers all got along you know they put each other first he the story of edgar with edgar definitely shows he put his put he put himself second in a lot of in, in everything that he did let me just point this out on a number of polls eisenhower is ranked in the top 10 of american presidents historically he's considered to be uh you know he's so he's good egg when it comes down to that. I guess I would ask this question to bring it back to Texas. Um, I guess my question would be: Is you know, uh, is he is he deserving of being in that top ten? To you guys, I think so. Yeah. Okay. Well, there you go. I mean, yeah. He, I mean, Mad he made a cool yeah. show. I get it. You know, he's yeah. kind of responsible for I mean, that. He, so. he he had his <laughs> mistakes. I mean, he. He did have his mistakes, you know, and and I think his final speech is a recognition of that. That he let, he did let the allow the military to grow st- too strong, the intelligence community to grow too strong. They did interfere too much in the international politics. Um, well, it certainly laid the groundwork but, for a lot of things we're dealing with now. But I would not put all of that on Eisenhower. No, not all of it. But I mean, he's the, he's the man in charge, so you kind of got it. Uh, there were times when it seemed like he wasn't as attentive as he should have been, but. Um, he, 
he definitely, you know, he made a strong case, even though it wasn't as strong as it could have been. He made a strong move in in the in the civil rights arena, you know, uh, enforce enforcing the Brown versus Board of Education, uh, enforcing, you know, uh, passing this, tr- trying to pass the Civil Rights Act. You know, those are strong movements. And then and then investing in America's infrastructure is probably his greatest legacy with the interstate highway system. So, well, let's bring it back to our show and to Texas. You know, the question I sort of ask is interesting is we talk about a lot of people who are, they're people who are born in Texas, that we have the native Texans. And then we have a lot of people like David Crockett who are come here with every intention of being Texan and have a really great two weeks that ends very badly. <laughs> um, well, I mean, it's, you know, we, yeah. he's born here, but he, he moved to Kansas when he's a year and a half. But I find it interesting in his life that he had a lot of connections to San Antonio, to Texas through the military, which is such a defining piece of modern Texas, I think, is its military presence and, uh, you know, how, uh, yeah, its military presence. He made a Texas lady that is one of his cabinet members. So, Obeda Culp Hobby, who's a remarkable character, she probably deserves her own show as well. Um, but you know, he took a bold stance and 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 made this one of Texas's great ladies into a cabinet member. You know, so well, way to go, Ike. Yeah, way to go, Ike. I like Ike. Yeah, and he was buddies with Bob Kleberg of Tex- of King Ranch. Well, like you know, if you like golf, you like Mad Men. Yeah. He's your guy, you know, and I'm a big yeah. fan of him and his buddy Mike's candy. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's a real thing. That's probably not a I real like thing. I, huh. I, I, uh, I love my favorite portrayal of Eisenhower is in uh, the right stuff. I want test pilots. <laughs> <laughs> probably one of the most interesting things of Eisenhower's legacy is, of course, the interstate system. Um, if you live in Texas, you drive everywhere uh, and anything under six hours is considered you know just a day trip so yeah uh take that new englanders but um <laughs> and in fact i i recently was somebody was talking about texas and non-texan was talking about texas and they're saying you know they were driving from uh somewhere out west to florida and so she decided to come along and they're going to make it this multi-day trip and she's like we drove you know, California, and then we crossed Nevada, and then we crossed this, and then we got to El Paso, and then we got up in the morning, <laughs> and we got in the car, and we drove all day, and we made a stop, and we left the dog out, and then we got back in the car, and then we got to Dallas, and I told my husband to take me to the airport, and I took a plane to Florida, <laughs> because <laughs> this stupid state never ends. <laughs> then I think it, yeah, it's a transformational it, thing. Yeah, and I, I will say, if for no other reason, I like Ike for the highway system because it has saved our bacon so many times getting uh, out of the area when the hurricanes came through down on the coast. So thanks, Ike. It's the easiest way to oh, yeah. to move a truck full of cores from from Texarkana <laughs> <laughs> to Atlanta in less than twenty four hours. It's It's quite an easy trip. It's quite an easy trip if you just take the highway. (laughs) Yeah, it takes freeways, yes. 
That wraps things up for today. You can find notes and links from today's show at brainstaple.com. We'd love to hear from you. So like and share us on Facebook, follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast, or go to brainstable.com and leave some feedback. You can find our show and many other great history podcasts at historypodcasters.com. Why not follow us individually, too? Hey, you know me. I'm Mike, and I'm on Twitter at Mr. Java. I'm at Max Sean with two N's. Two N's, not one, two. <laughs> and I am Scotticus, spelled just like it sounds. You love this show, you love Texas, and maybe you like Ike. So tell your friends about us, leave a review on iTunes, and make those people that call themselves your friend leave a review on iTunes, because that really helps us out to find listeners just like you. If you'd like to support the show financially, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash texaspodcast. Special thanks to our good friend Paul Schmel for helping to write and research this episode. You can reach him on Twitter at Paul Schmel. We hope you'll join us next time. And remember that even if you aren't from Texas, Texas wants you anyway. <laughs> <laughs>